1 John 2, 18. Little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have no, no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not of us. And that's kind of wordy, but I think you're getting the picture. But you have an unction from the Holy One, and you know all things. We're going to talk about what that unction does in the setting of 1 John 2. I'd like to teach for a little while on an unction from the Holy One. God bless you. Please be seated. I have a lot of material, and I will move as quickly as possible but a message that I feel from the Lord for us tonight. Unction is that powerful, inexplicable energy of God that flows through a man or woman of God to do the work of God. Unction is not merely a human emotion. It is not passion for a cause. Unction is not measured in the decibel levels of one's voice that the louder you get the more anointed you are. And while an unction affects our emotions, our passions, and often our tone of voice, unction is not any one of those things. Unction and anointing are synonymous terms. Anointing with oil had a common everyday use for those who lived in the arid Middle Eastern climate. God chose to use oil as a symbol of his presence and his power. Anointing oil was used as a means of putting oil on a person to consecrate them into an office. Uh, the first instance of religious use of this oil was the anointing of the stone by Jacob at Bethel. And I preached about Bethel on Sunday. Bethel, we've said all our life, but probably Bethel, L as in El Shaddai. Evidently, uh, this oil was designed as a formal consecration, or in that moment, Jacob used it to set this place apart for a holy purpose, consecrating it to God. Genesis twenty-eight eighteen. Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it, the first use of that by Jacob. The idea of unction comes from the image of this holy anointing oil being poured or spread on the head of the one being anointed. Unction is to have an outside force pressed into your spirit, supernaturally enabling you for holy service, to do something for God that you cannot do in your own ability. When Saul, King Saul, was anointed by Samuel to be the first king of Israel. Samuel said in 1 Samuel 10 and 6, and the spirit of the Lord will come upon thee and thou shalt prophesy with them and thou shalt be turned into another man. And let it be when these signs are come up unto thee that thou shalt do as occasion serve thee for God is with you. I'm anointing you to be king. And after you're anointed to be king, special power of God is going to come on you. You're going to feel something you've never felt before to do things you've never done before. It is an unction from the Holy One. I want to ask you, I know that not everybody in this room is a minister, as in apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, may not have a fellowship card, but I believe that God has an anointed church and a gifted church. I've taught that here for over 28 years. That's who we are, gifted and anointed by God. Do you feel the, do you remember the very first time that you felt an unction from the Holy One? That you were singing or teaching or witnessing or studying or doing something for God. And then all of a sudden there was this turbocharging of your mind, of your ability, of your voice. And all of a sudden you realize that you had gone from the natural to the supernatural, that there is a holy anointing 
that came on you. My, I felt the anointing as a young person many times, although I did not recognize it, and I don't think it was many times a call to preach, but an anointing of the Lord. But I have a vivid memory of my first official sermon. No one else remembers it, but I do. Uh, if you saw my notes, and some of you have, and media has way too many pages of notes that I'm using tonight, I, I like to study and I like to put down my thoughts. And as you're gonna, if you're going to be somewhere 28 years, you don't want to say the same thing every time you get up to preach. So study and preparation. So I, I usually use very detailed outlines, and that's my personality, and it's also a discipline a preparation, thought, prayer, expressing what God is saying. So this is my first sermon. I'm a Bible college student, first year. I've never preached a real sermon, and we're going to go to Morrow, Arkansas, going to sing with Dan Dean of Phillips, Craig, and Dean, and James Shockley, and, and I'm the only one that's a preacher at that time, and I've never really preached. This is my first year of Bible college, and I'm going to preach my first official sermon for David Dean in Morrow, Arkansas, in the middle of nowhere, Arkansas. I've been praying, fasting, asking that God would let Sister Betty Frazier call me and prophesy over me, and she did. Anybody that has a connection to Jackson, Pastor Greg Frazier, it's there now, his mom. Nothing, there was nothing. Pray, fast, study, nothing. I didn't have an unction from the Holy One I didn't have a sermon idea. I mean, I could jot and write, but there was nothing. And she didn't call me and didn't prophesy. And I think I even called her and tried, you know, like maybe something would happen if I called her. So this is in the spring of 1976. And we're in church. We've already sung our trio. And it, I am supposed to preach and I have nothing. I, I don't have a note. And while I'm on the platform, this is pretty scary for your first sermon. Uh, I'm not that wild about it when it happens now, you know. And on the platform, the Lord spoke to me and he gave me a verse. That is all. And I turn in my Bible to Matthew 24, 42. And I preach for about 20 minutes on watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. And I felt... I have felt the anointing of God before, but it was never like in an official sermon. But I will never forget that first sermon and the anointing of God that came on me as I preached. And it was probably not great, but it was to me significant. And it taught me what I already knew, but it taught me by experience that without him, I can do nothing. But it also taught me that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, that if he does not speak to me and anoint me, that I can do nothing of eternal value. But in my human frailty and inability, you know, Paul said this, we are insufficient of ourselves. Our sufficiency is of God, that if God will anoint me, then anything is possible through him. There's nothing like the unction from a holy one and anyone who has ever experienced it will never forget it, and you know that it came from God, was not generated by any other power. When God uses you to do something that is beyond your own ability, it is an unction from the Holy One. Now, the Lord gave me this message in 2014. I had preached it five times, only in 2014 and 2015, and only to ministers. I've never taught this at our church. I've talked about certain things here. But Sunday, as we were worshiping the Lord, the Lord brought this nine-year-old message back to me. And I've adapted my notes for our church, but I, I felt that the Lord gave me this message for ministers at that particular time. And I preached it first in an evangelist seminar in Dallas, Texas. So here we are tonight. And I, I want to say that because... I recognize that the tone of this message is for calling, for anointing, for ministry. But I know where I am. I know who you are. And I thank God, and I said at the beginning, that I believe that we have an anointed Holy Ghost church of people that are spirit-led, or spirit-filled, and spirit-led. 
an unction from the Holy One. Now, I put a section in my notes, and that made it longer. It's already a long message about the occasion of 1 John, that John was writing to churches in crisis. They were under attack by false teachers, and they were individuals who had once been associated with their churches, their apostolic churches that had adopted heretical doctrine, especially as it relates to the nature of Christ, Christology, and they left the church. But even after they left, they continued to spread their teachings and they, they inspired teachers to come back in to organize and to try to undermine and overthrow the faith of people that were still in apostolic churches. They had the goal converting them. And I just want to say they always do. They got to come back and try to undermine your faith, not just leave quietly. This theological assault created confusion and crisis within the believing community of Christians. And John is writing to this. He has two objectives. First, he wants to combat the propaganda and against of the false teachers and encourage the believers. That's all part of this first thing. And he argues that these others are not into, they are not genuine believers. And he, and he gives them three reasons that they are not true believers. First, he said they are doctrinally wrong. They have gone into false doctrine that is against what the apostles taught. And there's a lot that could be said about that and, and probably Gnostic ideas. And I will get to that later. And then secondly, he taught them uh, that they were morally wrong, that this false doctrine had led to immoral lives, that the grace of God uh, allowed you to live a lascivious or ungodly life. So that was the second thing. And thirdly, that there were ethical behaviors that were wrong or, or social behaviors. There was a lack of brotherly love. And if you think about the writings of John, he talks a lot about brotherly love, about the nature of Christ. If you do not believe that Christ has come in the flesh, he's battling this Gnostic teacher. His second reason is to fortify them about the assurance of salvation, that this confusion that has developed among them needed to be addressed with doctrinal teaching, that they needed to know that what they believed and had been taught was true, so their faith was not undermined. So this was, this was critical to the writings of John, especially in first John. So I want to look at first John two and 20, the heart of my text, but you have an unction from the Holy one and you know all things. Now this is amazing that, that God would give us an unction from the Holy one. It is what Joel prophesied, Joel prophesied about in Joel 2, that my spirit will be poured out on all flesh, not just a few prophets or teachers, sons and daughters, servants, handmaidens, generational anointings. So he says, you have an anointing from the Holy One that in me and my flesh, Paul said, there dwell, it dwells no good thing. I don't have anything about me that God could use without him sanctifying me, giving me his spirit. Amen. We have this treasure in an earthen vessel and we're fallible people, uh, people of like passions, like Elijah, subject to emotional ups and downs. And sometimes like Paul, he has fightings without and fears within. And sometimes he despairs even of life. We are people like that. But to think that God would anoint us with the Holy Ghost, that we can have an unction from the Holy One to live God's life, to witness for him, to do ministry. It's humbling to me. He said, you have this and what you have is an unction. You have an unction from the Holy One. I've already described this and talked about this unction, but I believe that the unction needs to be nurtured and guarded. You need to learn to exercise your senses to know how to operate in the anointing of God, whether it is in the gifts of the spirit or whether it is in ministry gifts, you need to perfect those gifts and learn how to operate in the giftings that God has given you. You have 
and unction from the Holy One. And what we do in ministry is never done in just the energy of the flesh. Paul said that I've come to you not in the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power that your faith would not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We have an unction from the Holy One, like Paul, to do special miracles. We have a powerful unction. But then he said it is, you have an unction from. In other words, it is not something that you just generate in yourself. It comes from God. You cannot manufacture it. We've all been around long enough. Many of us have been around the church long enough to see people try to manufacture a move of God. I'm not against getting louder, amping up the music, calling people to prayer, but anointing unction is not manipulation. It is beyond emotion. It is something that only God can do. It comes from the Holy One. Amen. And we need to learn to cultivate a walk with God and to learn how to flow in the anointing of the Holy Ghost and to know where it comes from. Amen. Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, he said, you've got these giftings, but you need to realize that you received it. You can't glory in how God uses you when this is not you. This is God working through you. He's saying, quit being proud of how God uses you. If God withdrew that from you, you could do nothing. Amen. What do you have that God hasn't given you? And when God uses you, make sure you give God the glory. Amen. I had to learn to give God my flops and failures, just like I gave him my victories. Because one day I was kind of down on myself and aggravated. I didn't think I did a very good job. And some elder in my life said, well, when you do really well, don't you give God the glory for that? I know where this is going and I don't like it. Well, when you think you did bad, you need to give God the glory for that. Because you say you didn't do it when you did well. So give God the glory when you think you didn't do well at all. And I have stories when I think I flopped and God used me in spite of that. Amen. But we realize that it has to come from God. That flesh only produces more flesh. And we want whatever we do to be born of the spirit, not just the flesh. Intelligent, educated flesh attractive flesh, talented flesh, just more flesh. And you've heard me talk about that a lot through the years. But I'm amazed that God is in his incredible wisdom would choose to use finite flesh like us to be anointed by the spirit. You have an unction from, and then the next word, 1 John 2 and 20, from the Holy One, from the Holy One. Now, I believe in verbal plenary inspiration, meaning that the very words in the original manuscripts were inspired by God, that holy men of God wrote while they were, when they were moved by the Holy Ghost. No accidental words, no extraneous words. You have an unction from the, he didn't just say one, from the Holy One. And this is in the context of what John is saying about holiness, that it comes from God. And I believe in nurturing the anointing, the unction that God has given us, that we need to maintain our holy, consecrated life. And I preached about that on Sunday and the Sunday before to some extent. We realize that all of sin comes short of the glory of God. But we also realize that we're dead to sin and we don't continue to live in sin that grace may abound, that we've buried our old life that God has let all things become new. So we should never deceive ourselves that we can continue to be anointed by God over the long haul, and I'll address this in a little while, and live in sin. Because sometimes that anointing is still there even when you're not right with God. And it's hard to explain, but I know it's true. John said, I write unto you that you should sin not. Peter said that we should be holy as he is holy. And John said that he's cleansed us from all sins. And Paul said that we should cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. That holy anointing oil, that anointing or unction 
kind of derives that imagery from. It was something that God gave the recipe for. And he said it cannot be used in any common usage in life. You can't cook with it. You can't put it on like perfume before you go out on a date. You only use it for worship. And then you had myrrh, cinnamon, casea, calamus, and olive oil. It was put together with the art of the apothecary. And it was reserved for special uses. And I know that the holy anointing oil, the unction from the Holy One, is given by God to be used for God's purposes and nothing else. It is not to glorify us. You have an unction from the Holy One. I love this. First John 2 and 20. We're looking at this word one in this verse. That anointing is connected to the nature of God. Like hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That anointing is linked to God's holiness and God's oneness. Amen. 31 times in the Old Testament, God is called the Holy One of Israel. He's not called the Holy Duet or the Holy Trio or the Holy Quartet. He is the Holy One of Israel. Holiness is not our brand. It is the nature of God. We are oneness Pentecostals, not because it's our heritage, but because it is biblically right. It's the revelation of the one true living God. Amen. And I believe that unction in it is embedded the nature of God, that his holiness and his oneness is linked to his power. Amen. When you preach and teach that God is one, it's amazing to me. When you start preaching about the nature of God, there's a unique anointing that comes from that because you are declaring who God is and he reveals himself through his word. Amen. The Holy One of Israel. Now, unction, you know when you have it and discerning saints know when you don't. I heard a preacher say one time, rattle your canteen. As if to say there's nothing in there. It's just an empty canteen. Discerning saints know and you don't. The Bible said, you know, Samson, he kind of stirred himself as at other times. He'd been playing with the anointing. Remember that? But when he severed his consecration to God, his Nazarite vow, the spirit of God left him. He didn't even know it was gone. Wow. There are a lot of churches. That have form, but not the power of God. I don't want to ever wake up one day and realize like Ichabod, the glory has departed and that we are powerless. We need an unction from the Holy One. Amen. And when we have it, it gives us the power of God to operate through us. And it's amazing to me that it's paradoxical of faith and fear that you have faith that when God anoints you, you can do anything he calls you to do. Run through a troop, leap over a wall, kill a giant, raise the dead. But there's also a fear that if God does not show up, you are in a heap of trouble. And I felt that before too. Amen. It is a dependency on God that you have an unction from the Holy One. And I have learned, and I want to say this for everybody involved in any kind of ministry, even in your life, raising your family, I've learned that I can hack away at a sermon outline. I can try to get a sermon like my first sermon, but it is nothing if God does not anoint it. But I am thankful that I am a labor together with God, that when I do what only, you know, I can do, I do what I can do, that God will anoint me to do what I cannot do. He will supernaturally use me and he will supernaturally use you beyond your ability because we have an unction from the Holy One. Amen. Now, I want to just take a moment to say that there's a difference between anointing and approval from God. And, and I mentioned this earlier And this is where it is in my notes that there has to be an approval of God that comes from pleasing God and being obedient to God in your life. Like Jesus was a man approved of God. He was found in fashion as a man 
and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus in Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, spoke of people who did many wonderful works in his name, but yet when they met him in judgment, he said, depart from me, I never knew you. The Bible speaks of lying wonders that are done, you know, to produce the miraculous, but it is not true. Many years ago, Brother J.T. Pugh preached that you can be anointed, but not blessed. I have learned that sometimes the anointing will stay in a person's life even when they have not been approved by God by their life, but in time, it will go away. Brother Billy Cole taught me personally, just talking to him, and he preached it, that like the Corinthian church, you can be powerful and not spiritual. I never really thought about that till he told me one day, they were filled with gifts, but Paul said, I'm writing unto you because you're spiritual. You've got schisms in the church and favoritism. You've got problems with unity. Corinth was gifted, but they were not godly. Paul told him in 1 Corinthians 14 that everybody's got a doctrine, a psalm, a hymn, a tongue, a prophecy. But he said in 1 Corinthians 3, I cannot speak unto you as spiritual, but unto carnal. John 15, I've learned through life and from the Bible, it, this helped me. And Jesus said, if you do not abide in me, you're cast forth as a branch and you are withered. You can cut a branch off of a tree or a shrub and it doesn't instantly turn brown because there is still life in it that came. Jesus said, except you abide in me, you can do nothing. So sometimes when people quit walking with God, but they keep working for God, there's an anointing that abides for a while, but eventually it will die in them because they're operating on an old gift and not the approval of God. So I want to make sure that we don't say, well, that person must be right with God because God used them. I wish I could say that was always true. I want to be right with God and I want to be used by God, not this or that, but this and that. Amen. Amen. Saul prophesied among the prophets, but he was egotistical, insecure, a small man of tall stature. Caiaphas, the high priest, was used by God to prophesy, not because he was spiritual, but because of his office. John eleven fifty one. 51. Amen. We want to have the whole package, amen? We have an unction from the Holy One. I want to see this verse again, First John 2 and 20. But you have an unction from the Holy One, and you know all things. What do you mean you know all things? This unction from the Holy One can anoint us. That's what unction is. Sing, preach, teach, counsel, lead, administrate, bless, curse, bind, loose, heal, Deliver, imparting the gift of the Holy Ghost, being used in spiritual gifts, imparting spiritual gifts, doing supernatural works. But when the Lord prompted this passage to me, I didn't really know why. I told you 2014 uh, to preach at an evangelist conference. And I just had this verse. The Lord prompted it to my mind. So I began to study and dig and try to figure out what was it about this text that the Lord wanted me to say, because there was something unique, different than what I saw on the surface, that John is challenging his spiritual children to exercise this unction to discern the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. He's not saying you have an unction in this context. Unction is how God uses us in many, many ways. But in 1 John, he's saying there are some people that used to be in the truth and now they're not. They've walked away from what is right. He said, but you have an unction from the Holy One. I'm giving you a power of understanding so that you can discern that they are no longer with you and they are no longer of you, that they have departed from the faith. This unction is to detect the authentic, and know that it's not a counterfeit. And to see the counterfeit and to know that it is not the real. Now, John talks about this in 1 John 2, 18. 
little children. It is the last time. Now, Joel said the last days, you know, the spirit was going to be poured out. Peter said that these, this is what fulfilled it. So the last days really began on the day of Pentecost, the church dispensation. In terms of human history, the last days began on the day of Pentecost. And I think we know that we're living in the last of the last days. I watched because of the times last night, I felt like I needed to be home this week. And so I'm not there at that conference. But he talked about we live in a day when everything prophesied about is possible electronic. Things that we preached about, been preached about since then. Now today, there could be a mark of the beast. You can project an image all over the world. We now have a generation where everything that's prophesied about in Daniel and Revelation could happen right now. But John said, even back then, he said, it is the last time, and as you've heard, that Antichrist shall come. Even now, there are many Antichrists. There's a spirit of Antichrist, false teachers, people in their generation that were going around trying to infiltrate the church and undermine the faith of those believers. John is writing about it. He's specifically talking about an error that would develop into Gnosticism and other related heresies. So John, 1 John, has a polemical purpose, a critical speech. He's arguing against error in 1 John. He talks about the spirit of error. He opposes it and exposes it as being in opposition to the truth. So verse John 4 and 6. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John says, if people listen to sound doctrine, you know that they're of the spirit of truth. And when people reject sound doctrine, they are of the spirit of error. He tells them in 1 John 4 to not believe every spirit, but to try the spirits, whether they're of God, for many false prophets are gone out into the world. I want to encourage you tonight, and I cannot give you six reasons why I felt anointed by the Lord to teach on this tonight, but I'm going to bear down on this a little bit, this point, that we need to pray that God would give us discernment. Jesus said, you will know people by their fruit. My grandfather used to say, I don't judge people, but I am a fruit inspector. Sorry, Shannon, our grandfather. First John 2, 19. I want you to see this. This is pretty powerful. They went out from us, but they were not of us. These false prophets distinctly named by John with the spirit of Antichrist and the liar and the deceiver. That's who the Antichrist is. Against everything that is written against sound doctrine. And he's defending the church against this false doctrine. There are many false doctrines, but in this case, it seems to be this doctrine of Gnosticism. Now, the Gnostics claim superior spiritual knowledge. They would say things like, I know God, and I abide in Christ, and I am in the light. But they were unethical. They did not have love. They were intellectual without the spirit. They thought that knowledge in itself was supreme. They thought because... You know, it was all spiritual that it didn't matter really how you lived. You know, to the pure, all things are pure. I can do anything, but I've got a pure spirit. John is writing against this. He's preaching against this. And in the New Testament, there were a number of false doctrines. I'm not going to get into this tonight, but there were the Judaizers. There was asceticism, antinomianism. Docetism, the Nicolaitans, the doctrine of Baal, and both of those last two spoken about in Revelation. But, but as I studied this and dug into this, I realized that there are two fatal flaws of false doctrine, okay? Coming down to the, the basic core of what I want to say tonight. Two fatal flaws. The first fatal flaw of false doctrine is that it always corrupts the goal of grace. They'll say, Oh, we're living by grace. It's by grace. You can do anything you want. You know, where grace doth abound, sin, you know, sin abound, there doth much, grace much more abound. 
But Titus said in Titus 2.11, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we shall live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. But they thought that grace taught that you can live any way you want. And anyone who tells you that we're in the age of grace, not under the law, and that that means that you can live any way you want, lawlessly, if you just read your Bible, read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, except your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you can no wise inherit the kingdom of God. You can't even get into the kingdom unless you live this out. What Jesus came to do was not destroy the law, but to fulfill it, to write it in our hearts. He didn't say, I came to erase the law. He said, I came to put it inside of you. So the first fatal flaw of false doctrine is, is that it undermines the goal of grace. That grace never comes to lead you to an ungodly lifestyle. And anyone who says that is of the spirit of, I'm not saying they're the antichrist, but it is of the spirit of antichrist. It is a spirit of a lie. It is not sound doctrine. And I want to tell you that you have an unction from the Holy One to discern that. The same Holy Ghost that can anoint you to speak in tongues or preach or sing or do whatever you do for God can anoint you to discern false doctrine. You, John wrote, have an unction from the Holy One so that you can see these things. Amen. So that's the first thing. The spirit of error turns the grace of God into lasciviousness. Jude 1 and 4. There are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, lawless living, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. That second part is going to be the next point that John makes. Lasciviousness is unbridled passion. Lustful excesses. And the Apostle John attacks this erroneous idea that grace excuses our obligation to live by the moral law of God. This doctrine, this false doctrine of antinomianism, it says that you're released by grace from the obligation of serving, observing the moral law. What a crazy doctrine that a holy one of Israel, right? That's why I was talking about holy and one came to let you just live any way you want. You're going to go to heaven living like the devil. Maybe you belong somewhere else, right? First John three, seven little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous. Even as he is righteous, he that committeth sin is of the devil. The devil sinneth from the beginning this purpose, the Son of God, was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now, I'm sure you've read that. Maybe you weren't thinking about this unction from the Holy One and what John is dealing with here. He's saying you've got people that are coming among you, and they're saying that you can be unrighteousness and be, you know, of God. But he's saying, no, 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 no. You're of the devil when you live by that. John tears down this tenet of the doctrine. He says... And these are references in 1 John that sin is lawlessness, that all unrighteousness is sin, and whoever is born of God does not sin, and that no righteousness, there is no God in your life, 1 John 3 and 10. False doctrine will always lead to unrighteousness. So just watch where people go when they walk away from truth. The first trait of heresy is to corrupt the goal of grace. The second trait of false doctrine is that heretics lower the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is done theologically and practically. In 1 John, there's a false doctrine of docetism being propagated. There's a, a teacher that maybe is a root of all that. But in John, we read that Jesus was God in flesh. That he was the word of life in 1 John 1 and 1. He is Christ. He's the son of God. He says, if anyone does not believe that Christ has come in the flesh, he's not of God. You've got to believe in the nature of God. Every time 
false doctrine will lead to walking away from living for God in holiness, grace leading to lasciviousness, and to lower the lordship of Jesus Christ. They can say all of a sudden, well, you know, the Trinitarians are the oneness people. They, they really mean the same thing. It's just semantics. They believe the same thing. We do not believe the same thing. We do not believe that there are three who are co-equal and co-eternal. We believe that there's one Lord. Amen. He's not eternally existent in three persons. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He is the Holy One of Israel. False doctrine lowers the lordship of Jesus Christ. The mighty God in Christ becomes God in three persons. The Lord who should be the Lord of our lives is reduced to like a resource for ministry. Heresy reverses the role of the lordship of Jesus Christ where he's where we want him to be in our life. False doctrine always does it theologically and practically. You can call yourself a oneness Pentecostal like we are, but if you lower the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life and are not consecrated to him effectively, you have created an idol and lowered, lowered his role in your life. Right? Consecration is to be set apart and sold out to God. Amen. And when a person walks in false doctrine, they, they become the CEO of their life. You may have a voice if they let you. I'm not talking about Pastor John's but the authoritative word of God or any person in authority that is teaching or preaching the word of God, but how they see it, how they feel about it, always supersedes anything anyone else would ever say. Heresy tends toward loose living and undermining authority. The spirit of Antichrist was at work then and it is at work now, but we have an unction from the Holy One. Now, now, this is a hard thing that I'm getting ready to say. Verse 19. John says, 1 John 2, 19. And I told you this was wordy, right? And I'm watching my time. It's not helping much, but I'm very aware of it. They went out. Next week is a business meeting, so I'm trying to make up, right, for no Bible teaching next week. John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. It's very painful to watch people walk away from truth. Especially when you're young, you may not understand. People are impressive to you. But John said, if they would have been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be manifest or revealed that they were not all of us. Remember not too long ago, I spoke on the polarizing power of the gospel. That the gospel draws people toward God who are sincere. And it drives people away from God who are not. I'll review those notes briefly today. And it was about John 666. Many turned back and walked with him no more. It was those words of Jesus that just kind of divided them, drew some in and drove some away. John says they were hanging around with us for a while, but something happened and they just couldn't stand it any longer and they went out from us. And if they would have been with us, they would have believed what we believed. If they would have been right doctrinally, they would not have left. But John said they went out so it would really be clear that they are not of us. I'm not preaching about a particular person. I told you, it's minding my own business, worshiping God Sunday morning. The Lord prompted me to this message. I'm teaching it for that reason. But the gospel does draw and it does drive. But it makes plain who is with us and who is not. This is the purpose of the unction, First John 2.20 again, after again and again. But you have an unction from the Holy One and you know all things. John said, don't you see? They're not with us anymore. They, they left us so it would be manifest that they, they didn't believe what we believed. They were not with us. They were not of us. And you have an unction 
from the Holy One to be able to discern that they are no longer in the truth and of the truth. This is a very powerful, not my sermon, but this passage is pretty deep and challenging. This anointing. 1 John 2, 26. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which you have received of him abideth in you. And you do not need that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, it is truth and is no lie. And even as it hath taught you, you shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him. That when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. 1 John 4, 1. Believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know you the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, where you have heard that it should come. And even now it is already in the world. Jude told us to keep ourselves in our most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost that mockers would come in the last times, walking in their own lust, separating themselves, sensual, not having the spirit. Amen. Musicians would come, give us hope. When I was uh, graduated from Bible college, was teaching youth ministries in the Bible college in Jackson. And some of the, some of the men who were very influential in my life or very brilliant teachers uh, departed from the faith. And one particular man was a, a strong mentor in my life. I was about 24 or 25 years old, I believe. And I grieved their going because I loved them. They were my friends. They believed in me. But something changed. And I went through a season of confusion. I was torn emotionally by my personal respect and love for them. I was really sincere, wanting to do the right thing. But I remember telling God, I want to do what's right. It doesn't matter if it's the UPC or not. I want to do the right thing. I, in that season, I put my head down and tried to dig deep in God. And I'm not bragging. I was trying to survive. It took me about two years fight through to complete victory over my grief of their loss, and my confusion over their error. But there were some things that kept me on track. First, they turned the grace of God into false liberty. They threw away apostolic identity. And then they lowered the lordship of Jesus Christ by rejecting the governance that was over them in the Lord, a pastor, a president of a Bible college, undermining, going behind the back and doing things to overthrow the faith of precious students. Even one of my own precious young people from my youth group. Later, it led to a denial of oneness Pentecostal theology. For a while, they tried to operate incognito, flying under the radar, influencing young leaders to follow them. But now, I think it's about over 40 years later. Tragedy is really clear. But in that moment, in that season in my young ministerial life, I needed an unction from the Holy One. I needed God to come help me sort out human relationships and confusion and the grief of having a break fellowship with people that I love. Jesus said, your enemies might be of your own household, and I'm not trying to break up families, but he said, truth is, is a divider at times. And in our human kindness and compassion and tolerance of all the belief systems that are out there, because people believe everything in the world now, now, I still believe the truth, they say. I just, I just don't believe holiness. 
Well, holiness happens to believe truth. I still believe the doctrine, they'll say. Well, holiness is a doctrine. And the purity and power of God is connected. You cannot separate them. Cannot separate them. There are a lot of voices out there. I look quickly, you know, the poem of the Odyssey and the siren song trying to draw you away. There are a lot of voices in the world. They can be convincing and logical teaching voices. That's what John was talking about, teaching voices. Pseudo-prophetic voices that appeal to the senses and sensationalism. The voices of doctrinal compromise. The voices that mock apostolic identity are holiness of flesh and spirit. Telling you, and this is where it's in my notes, that they believe the doctrine but not holiness. Voices that will tell you the doctrine doesn't even matter. Voices that will tell you that the difference between oneness and Trinitarian theology is merely semantics. Voices that tell you you're okay and I'm okay. You love God, we love God. And when I see really sincere people, denominations and non-denominational churches, I thank God for them. I pray that God will give them a great revival of truth. And sometimes that God would give us a great revival of sincerity. And commitments like some of them have as they're searching for truth. And I know oneness Pentecostal people that think they've got the corner on truth, but they've lost sincerity. You don't need to have one or the other. That's this and that, right? Be sincere. Thank God for the truth. If you're able, please stand. Thank you for bearing with me. I told you this was a lengthy message. There are many voices that will try to convince you to compromise the truth. But I hear the voice of the Holy One. And that same unction that operates in us in many, many ways will operate in you to give you understanding and discernment to discern truth from error. Someone is walking away and you do not go with them and you pray for them and love them. You not, do not let them delude you by speaking into your life error and not truth. Amen.